church, would you remain standing with me as we read Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. You may be seated. Though it's been some time back, you will likely remember back in Mark 8 when we studied the second of Jesus' miraculous feedings. Was it just seven loaves and a few small fish? Jesus fed this massive crowd of more than 4,000 people. Not only filling their bellies, but having enough leftovers for seven baskets full. And you remember that shortly after that, Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees. They came to him, as they always did, seeking to test and demanding a sign. A sign in the heavens. Yet Jesus would give these men no sign. Instead, he would turn and walk away. I told you back then, this was a sad, sad day. Because Jesus focused ministry there in the region of Galilee. It was It was over. These religious leaders, these people in these Jewish towns, they had seen more than enough. They had seen more than enough evidence that Jesus was who he said he was, that he could do what he said he could do, and that he had come to accomplish that which his father had sent him. They'd seen more than enough evidence, and they had decided in their hearts that they were going to reject Jesus Christ. Not only reject him, but they were going to demand his life. And so he turned his back, and he walked away. He didn't just walk away. He got into a boat, he and his disciples, and they headed across the Sea of Galilee, and Somewhere on their way back east, Mark tells us that the disciples realized that they had forgotten to bring any bread with them. They were back to their final loaf. And so they began to get anxious about what they were going to do. And they began to talk amongst themselves. How are they going to remedy this problem? And of course, Jesus, he knows the hearts of men. He knows every conversation that's happening. He knew exactly what these men were dealing with. And you can just imagine his frustration. These dudes had literally just watched as Jesus miraculously fed two ginormous crowds. It wasn't like he left these guys to wonder, like they saw him heal a deaf man and they had to wonder, okay, well, yeah, but can he make food? They had literally just been there when God and his supernatural working met the very need that they found themselves anxious about. So Jesus turns and he says to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? This would be the recurring theme from this moment forward. Hardened hearts leading to a lack of perception. Now, as the group arrived in Bethsaida, you remember that's the town at the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, right about the place where the Jordan River enters into the sea. Right upon coming upon shore, there's a man, a blind man, that comes running up to Jesus begging for help. Remember what Jesus does? He spits in the man's eyes, and then with a touch, he asks him, do you see anything? He says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. So Jesus touches the man's eyes again, and instantly, his sight is restored. Perfectly clear vision, seeing everything with 20-20 clarity, exactly as God would have intended it. But we asked back then, why? Why would Jesus take two stages to heal this man? Every, everywhere else, it was just one touch, it was just one word, and Jesus immediately brought full restoration to the need that the man standing before him had. But in this instance, he chose to do it in two touches. We asked back then, why? Surely there must have been some reason and there was. See, what Jesus was showing for, before us, what he was showing is he had turned and pulled away from the Jewish cities of Galilee. It would be some months before he would head south. But as he pulled his focus away from the Jewish cities there in the region of Galilee, as he turned his back on the religious leaders of the Jewish faith, as he turned his back and he headed off into the Gentile territories, as he showed that he was done with them and that he was going to focus on the twelve. He was going to focus on the apostles as he marched towards Jerusalem. He was showing us just how desperately we need the continued touch of Jesus Christ to see clearly. See, church men, they come to Jesus Christ with childlike faith. Oftentimes knowing nothing more than the filth that is within their heart and the infinitely holy God and seeing the gulf which exists. Therein being introduced to Jesus Christ and finding in him the only remedy to this incredible problem that now faces them. The realization that they, in their sin, face the eternal wrath of the Almighty God, seeing Jesus Christ as their only hope, and then throwing themselves upon his feet, begging him to do what only he can do. For many people, this is all they understand and nothing more. 
They have no concept of the deeper doctrines of God. They have no idea of the eternal decrees of the living God. They just see that Jesus Christ is there, and they know that he is enough. Dear friends, if this is you, rejoice, for you have been saved by the working of the Almighty God. And it is all the working of the Almighty God. You have been redeemed, cleansed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ set free from sin and Satan and death, and there is nothing and no one that will snatch you out of the hands of your Savior, for he is greater than all the rest. But you must know that he will not leave you here. It matters not how much you understand in this moment, but he will not lead you here. You come to Jesus with childlike faith, trusting the promises of God. That's the picture here. You see, a fool demands in his heart, I must know everything, and then I will believe. Not recognizing that it is from that place of belief that place of faith that God causes you to grow in your understanding. Credo, ut, intelligum. That's the word. I believe that I may understand. I don't demand all the answers. I don't demand the full picture. I don't demand to know the end of this story. I see you, Jesus Christ, and I know that you are a one to be trusted, and I place my trust in you. And from that place, he will cause me to grow, to grow in my understanding. And this is his plan. For every single one of his children, this is his plan, because God is not a derelict father. He will not leave you as you are. He will move you from milk to meat. He will continue to strengthen your understanding as you walk with him, as you do the hard work of wrestling with the scriptures, as you sit in a place like this and then you go into Bible studies, as you allow yourself to stand in awe at the infinite sovereign God of the universe and you allow yourself to feel tiny, realizing just how frail and weak and helpless you are. As you come to see that and you recognize the beauty that is in the face of Jesus Christ, the glory of God, as your excitement and your delight and your cherishment and your worship for this holy God grows, you find your ultimate purpose in this world. It's what God has created you for, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And as the God that has no shadows, that has no weakness, that has no lack, that has no evil, the more you gaze upon his glorious face, the more this joy grows, even as you feel tiny and tiny and more tiny by the day. This is his picture. This is his design for all of his children that we would grow in exactly this way. He will not leave you where you are from that place of faith, that childlike faith where you throw yourselves at the feet of Jesus Christ with his continued touch, he will strengthen you so that the winds of this world, so that the faulty teaching of this world, so that the waves of your own emotions, they won't drag you away. You will stand firm in that which you know. You will be not be moved off that line. You will see in the face of Jesus Christ the glory of your Father, and you'll want nothing else. And this was all playing out before the eyes of the apostles there as Jesus healed this man in two stages. That was a picture of healing of the blind man in Bethsaida. This is a picture of how desperately we need the continued touch. You never arrive, church. You know this, right? You never arrive. You never get there and say, well, I'm glad I've got God figured out. Let me put him on a shelf and go deal with something else now. There will never be an end to our desperate need for the continued touch, the deeper understanding, the greater sight that comes with following after Jesus Christ. And I told you back then, in Mark chapter 8, I told you then that that was a bookend. That was the beginning bookend of a series of teachings. And we've watched text after text after text as Jesus Christ has so patiently corrected those that are his. As they've shown how blind they are, how hardened their hearts are, as he's continued to touch them and bring them to clear sight. Do you feel like these apostles? Time after time after time as Jesus Christ lovingly corrects you where you err, where you completely miss, where you possibly even stumble into blaspheming the living God because your frail mind and your hardened hearts cannot grasp the truth of who he is. And yet now we come to a story that's very much like that one, the healing of another blind man. This is the back end. This closes out this entire section. Jesus is soon to march into Jerusalem and the passion will begin. But this closes off all that we have studied in these previous weeks as Jesus meets another blind man. So I ask you to stand to your feet, please. In the reverence to reading of God's word, we return to Mark chapter 10. We begin in verse 46. This is the word of God. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting on the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped. 
Jesus stopped and he called him. He called the blind man to himself and he said, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my precious Savior? Would you make this book live to me? For it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. It began like this. And they came to Jericho. You've got it by now, right? The flow of Jesus' travels, we've talked about it almost every week. He and his disciples, they cross the Sea of Galilee over to the eastern side. They come down the eastern shore of the Jordan River. They spend some time there in the region called Perea. They cross over the Jordan River, and then the first towns they come to before heading into Jerusalem is the town called Jericho. Now, it would have been springtime, so the river would have been high, maybe even coming out of its banks. And so Jesus and his disciples, I imagine they hitched a ride on a raft of some sort and crossed over into Jericho. And you know this town called Jericho. Familiar with it, Joshua and his men, once they crossed over the Jordan River, how God had miraculously handed this mighty town into their hands. They marched around it six times, once a day for six days, and then on that seventh day, seven times, and with a trumpet blast and a shout of victory, the walls come tumbling down. Now, New Testament Jericho, it's just a couple of miles south of Old Testament Jericho, and yet still, it was a town that had been there for a great great number of years. In fact, People tell us that it was one of, if not the, oldest continually inhabited cities in all the earth. And with good reason. Like an oasis almost. A land that is just fertile with irrigation and with ponds and springs there to feed all their agriculture. The city of palms. Great place to grow bananas and other fruits. It would have been a great place for Jesus and his disciples to stop before his ascension. Before that steep climb up into Jericho. I mean, to Jerusalem, excuse me. It's only 15 miles from Jericho to Jerusalem, but you climb some 4,000 feet upward. Living in crazy flat Harris County, you have no idea what it means to ascend so high in such a short period of time. And yet this was the climb that awaited these men. And so they come to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. The crowd was always great. Everywhere that Jesus went, the crowd was always great. There were those that were following after Jesus Christ, some that wanted to be his true followers, his disciples, some that were just looking for healing, some that were just pilgrims headed into Jerusalem for the Passover. But whatever the case, the crowd was great. Luke tells us that not only was there a man called Bartimaeus in the group, but there was another man. He was a rich tax collector. He was a wee little man. Anybody know his name? Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was also in this town. And Zacchaeus, just like all the rest of Israel, they had heard about Jesus. He had heard about Jesus' power and his authority. He, just like all the rest of Israel, had wondered if Jesus was the Messiah. He, just like all the rest of Israel, wanted to lay eyes on this Jesus, but the crowd was great. So you can just picture it. This mass of humanity already moving through the desert, across the Jordan, into Jericho. Then the people that lived in Jericho now lining the sides of the street. Listen, Jesus had been up in Galilee. That's where most of his earthly ministry took place. But they had heard that perhaps he was coming back to Jerusalem for the Passover. They would have seen this crowd and heard that he was in this crowd. And so they were there. Now this wee little man called Zacchaeus, he wanted to lay eyes on Jesus Christ. And so he ran. He ran and he found a tree. Not just any tree. What was it? Sunday school does you right. Climbed up in that sycamore tree to see what he could see. He climbs up there and he's wanting to lay eyes on Jesus Christ because the crowd was great. And then we're told that in this crowd, though, not just Zacchaeus, there was this other man. He was a blind beggar and he had heard too. You see, this news, it wasn't just for rich tax collectors. It wasn't just for religious leaders. It was for poor blind beggars like this. Somebody had been decent enough to tell this man that there was a Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that he was the promised Messiah, and that he was the one that had been spoken of. He was the one that was going to come to restore all order from that that sin had broken. From chaos, he was going to bring order. From illness, he was going to bring health. From blindness, he was going to bring sight. As a matter of fact, when he was in his hometown of Nazareth, in the synagogue there, he had picked up the Isaiah scroll and he had read, not just any passage, this particular passage from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recover of sight 
to the blind. And he has sent me to set, bring liberty to those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This news had found this poor man's ears, and his name is Bartimaeus. When you see that word bar in someone's name, do you know what that means? You'll think back to when Jesus was renaming Peter. His name was Simon Bar-Jonah. That is Simon, the son of Jonah. Bar means son of. And so when Mark tells us that this man is Bartimaeus, he's telling us that he's the son of Timaeus. So what we're actually reading here is, this is the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus. Thank you, Mark. How repetitive of you. But see, this just points to the reality that who Mark was writing to was not a Jewish audience. This was intended to, for Gentiles that would not have immediately understood that Bar meant son of. So he's telling them, this dude's really what, name really was Bartimaeus. You can call him Bartimaeus. And just so you know, he's the son of another man called Timaeus. But you need to understand that the fact that Mark took the time to name this man in and of, himself, in and of itself is quite remarkable. See, nowhere else in Mark's gospel are we told the names of the people that Jesus heals. You remember that when Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, we know Peter. We don't know the name of his mother-in-law, the one with the high fever that he healed. You remember that when Jesus was in the country of the Gerasenes, when he met the man there with many demons, and he set the, de set the man free from the demons, we know that the name of the demons was Legion because they were many, but we're never told the name of the man. We know about Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. We know that Jesus raised his daughter from the dead, but we're never told the name of the little girl. And yet for some reason, Mark saw fit to tell us the name of this guy, Bartimaeus. And I have to believe, firstly, it's because this, as best I can tell, was the last miracle that was recorded in all of Mark's gospel. Of course, you have the resurrection, you have the cursing of the fig tree, but the last healing miracle that we will see in all of Mark's gospel is found here in the life of this man, blind Bartimaeus. Beyond this, it seems to me that the first century church, they were apparently aware of who this guy was. He was a known guy. This man was around. You'll notice that neither Luke nor Matthew give us the name of the guy. As a matter of fact, Matthew tells us that there were two blind men, but Mark names this one man. You've got to remember that Mark's gospel is very likely the first one that was written, maybe as few as 20 years after Jesus' ascension into heaven. And so I'm picturing that the church, they knew this man. They knew Timaeus. They knew the son of Timaeus called Bartimaeus. And can you even imagine? Amazing grace just hits different when you've actually been made to see. Can you imagine the way he wrote? I get it. I know they weren't singing Amazing Grace, silly. You know. They like praise and worship. Not really. But you can just imagine this dude throwing back his head and singing his... They talk about this Jesus Christ and the miracles that he has performed as they worship this living God and all that he's come to do. And this man remembering all that Jesus had done for him and bringing sight from the blind. Verse 47, and when he heard that he was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Luke tells us that Bartimaeus had asked the crowd. Of course, he can't see, so he'd asked someone in the crowd what's going on. And they had told him, Jesus is here. Dear friends, I don't think we can overestimate this, the reality that this man was blind. We're not told why he was blind. We're not told if he was born blind. The way he says at the end, I wish you would restore my sight. Perhaps it makes it seem like maybe he had an accident or an illness that made him blind later. But whatever the reason, this man was blind. And he had heard that there was a man that could bring sight to the blind. They had heard there was a man that could do anything to bring healing to men here on earth. And yet he had no possible way of getting to him. And then he hears a rumor. Here's a rumor that this Jesus of Nazareth may perhaps be coming through Jericho. He may be heading through here on the typical path up into Jerusalem. And then he hears a crowd. And hears it within that crowd, is this Jesus? He knows that this is his only hope. You see, to be blind today, to be born blind today, that's a tough thing. That makes for a hard, hard life. And yet it is nothing compared to life in first century Palestine for a blind man. There were no social services. Very few jobs that the man could have done. A lifetime of begging, relying on the alms of strangers. Just barely making a living, barely surviving based on the gifts of other, and, and doing little more than surviving based on the gifts of other. But then you hear about this Jesus. No way to get to him, and yet you hear that he is here. You hear that he is passing through. You hear that he has the power, the ability, the willingness to bring sight to the blind. He is here. You get one opportunity, one instance, one moment. No guarantee he's coming back through. As a matter of fact, we know that he won't. No guarantee that he's ever going to have access to this Jesus Christ ever again, one shot, and so he takes it. He cries out. The Greek word is krazo. It's more than just a hollering out. It's a, it's, it's a deep, guttural cry. It's the picture of 
We see this with the demons as Jesus cast them out of men in the synagogues. We see this from the angels in heaven as they're opening the scrolls and, 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 and speaking God's decree over all creation. It's a cry deep down from his gut as he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, this is a new title for Jesus, this son of David. We've heard him often refer to himself as the son of man. We've heard his disciples refer to himself, refer to him as the Messiah, the Christ. But in Mark's gospel, this is a new phrase, this son of David. It is a messianic term, just like son of man, Jesus, son of David. It carried tones of the eternal kingdom, of God's promise with King David, the one from whom Jesus had descended. We read about his covenant in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. I shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God had promised through King David that he was going to rise up from him, from his offspring, from his family, one who would have a kingdom, a throne that would never pass away. The people had been anxiously awaiting this day. This is why both Matthew and Luke are so very determined to give us the genealogies of Jesus Christ, showing us how in his flesh he traces all the way back to King David. He was this one that they had been promised. And now as Jesus marches towards the city of David, you can imagine the anticipation growing. People recognizing that the son of David is coming to the city of David to take the throne of David for all time. It wouldn't be long after this that the crowds would be shouting out, Hosanna to the son of David. But on this day, it was this blind man. This man had never seen the face of Jesus Christ. May have never seen the face of anyone ever. And yet he knew that this was the son of David. He believed he trusted that this was the one they had waited for all this time, so he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You'll notice that man did not cry out for justice. He did not cry out for something that he deserved. He, deserved, he knew that he deserved nothing. He begged for mercy. In the Jewish culture, illness, particularly blindness, it was saw as a curse. It was seen as an evidence of sin in your life and some curse that had been handed down from God. You'll remember in John 9 that there was another blind man that Jesus encountered, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That was the thought of the day. Blindness was a punishment for sin. Blindness was seen as a curse, and Bartimaeus would have surely believed this. He would have surely believed this because you know what? Every man is a sinner. Every honest man knows that he has sinned. Every honest man that knows that he's a sinner and knows the holiness of God knows that he deserves much more than blindness. This Bartimaeus knew that he didn't deserve to be, to be given sight. He didn't deserve life. He didn't deserve eternal life. He deserved nothing. He had nothing to hold himself up before God and say, God, give me what I deserve. And so instead he called out for the only thing he could. He cried out for mercy. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. When he heard that Jesus of Nazareth was passing through, if he had truly known that he was the son of God, he had truly known that he was the infinitely holy one, it would have driven him to no other place than this, to take this opportunity to cry out like the tax collector in the temple. Jesus talked about this man in Luke 18, this man that had gone into the temple. He's a tax collector, so he dared not even look up towards heaven, and yet he offered his prayers there as he beat his chest. And he cried out, similarly, God, have mercy on me. Is this the tone of your prayers? Is this the tone of your prayers, recognizing that you deserve nothing in the kingdom of God? This man recognized this, and yet many rebuked him. Verse 48, the many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Luke tells us that it was the people at the front of the group that were telling him to be silent. Now, we aren't told that the disciples told the crowd to be quiet and ushered the man over. I think it's safe for us to say, based on all that we know about the disciples, based on all of their failures, based on their own pride, based on their own desires to be first and greatest in the kingdom of God, I think it's safe to say that they participated in this in the shushing of blind Bartimaeus and sternly telling him to be quiet. And we aren't told why. We aren't told what drove this. Was it perhaps the son of David that triggered this? Was it perhaps their fear that the Romans were going to find out that the king of the Jews was coming into the city of David to take his throne and they were terrified of what would happen? I believe more likely than that they had their eyes fixed on Jerusalem and all that was supposed to happen there and they didn't have time to be held up by this nobody. They didn't have time for this blind beggar with no standing in the kingdom of God to get in the way of the path of where they were headed with this one, the, the promised eternal king. I couldn't help as I read through this to think about that man called Jairus, that, daughter, that, that, that ruler in the synagogue whose daughter was ill. As he was there and he'd come to Jesus and he said, Jesus, you must rush. You must come quickly for my daughter is sick. If we don't get there, I'm afraid she's going to die. So Jesus graciously turns and he goes with the man. But then you remember there was that woman with the bleeding problem. She would have been an outcast. 
she thought to herself, if I can just touch the hem of Jesus' robe, then surely I will be made clean. And then as she reaches out and touches her, Jesus turns around and he says, who touched the hem of my garment? Then he has that beautifully gracious exchange where he speaks to that woman. He tells her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Be healed and go in peace. And yet I can just imagine as Jairus' heart throughout this entire interaction is saying, yes, Jesus, thank you. Yes, yes, let's go, let's go, let's go, my daughter. You remember my daughter. I'm somebody important. This lady's a nobody. This lady's a nobody. She can't even come into the temple in her uncleanliness. And now I'm calling you to come to my daughter. I'm calling you to get there. And then the servant comes and tells him, Jairus, your daughter has died. We're too late. You can imagine the fury. You can imagine the frustration. You can imagine the anger that he felt, probably much like these people. But they tell blind Bartimaeus that he needs to shut up. They've got places to go. Dear children, may that never be said of us. May we never be found to be working to restrict people's access to Jesus Christ. I know that we don't do it intentionally. But there is any number of ways that men and women just like us, we can find ourselves restricting access to Jesus Christ, the true Jesus Christ of the Bible. In the name of our own reputation, in the name of our own comforts, in the name of our own sin. And you would imagine that these men would have learned by now because Jesus was consistently having to correct them at exactly this point. You remember how they had found a man that was casting out demons in Jesus' name. And so the disciples, they came and they proudly proclaimed to Jesus, we saw this guy doing it, but he doesn't belong to our club. He doesn't follow you the way that we follow you. And so we told the man that he must stop. And Jesus was not amused. He says, don't do that. Whoever is not against us is for us. Then you remember the crowds were bringing their children to Jesus. Some of them even infants. Jesus just lay his hands on these children and blessed them. And you remember how they restricted the children. They tried to keep the children away. And Jesus, he was incensed. He tells them, don't do this. For such as these belong the kingdom of God. And now we see them yet again. After being told they must be servant of all and slave to all in order to be great, to be first, to have any place in the kingdom of God, we see him here restricting access, telling this blind beggar he needs to shut up. They were so slow to learn, but we are so slow to learn. We sit in places like this and we hear the teaching of God. We feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I know it because I stand here in this pulpit. Even as I preach, I feel the conviction of God. But I've sat right where you sat for nearly 20 years. I sat right where you sat. And I know what it feels like when the word of God strikes your heart and you feel the deep conviction. For me, it always began in my gut and then my face got hot. And then I wanted to run. I wanted to get out of this place, but I knew that I'd heard the word of my living God and he was going to chase me down because he loved me too much to allow me to continue in my sin. And so I sat there and I took it. I was beat about the head and neck by the Holy Spirit as he convicted me of my sins. I pray to God you don't pull back from that. But then what would happen is I'd go off to Sunday school or perhaps I would leave here and I'd go straight to my car. And as soon as I'd get in my car, Satan would talk me back into my senses. That's crazy talk. Nobody lives like that. Nobody's that radical in their obedience. Just moments earlier, I'd been swearing to the living God, I will never do that thing again, whatever that thing was. Or I'd swore to the living God, I will go do whatever you call me to do. Just ease up off me for a moment because I know that destruction is near if I do not obey. And now with an instant, with a soft word, with a lie, with a distraction, Satan drags you away from this place. We're so easily dragged away. We're so easily confused. We're so slow to learn. Slow to learn. And even at this point, church, you've got to hear me. Even at this point, the point of restricting access to the kingdom of God, seeking to, seeking to restrict access to Jesus Christ, we've got to be very, very careful. Church, we have grown so much. You have no idea what a blessing it is to be your pastor and hear about the conversations that are being had all throughout this church. Bible studies all throughout this church. People that are wrestling with the deep, deep doctrines of God. Wrestling with the true word of God, casting aside what they've always heard, casting aside their traditions, casting aside their emotions, casting aside their own ideas about who God is supposed to be, laying down on their face before the living God and saying, you and you alone offer life and I want to see you. I want to know you. I want to cherish you. I want to obey you. I feel like I'm living in the times of Habakkuk where God says, I'm going to do a work, but if I told you the work that I was going to do, you wouldn't believe me. Dear friends, you've got to understand this. If someone would have told me two years ago, God is going to do a work the likes of which you have never seen, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to prune your church. I'm going to literally chop it in half. Dear friends, that's exactly what God has done. Look around you. We were worshiping 500 in this place not that long ago. 
Now we're doing good to hit 250. And the spiritual growth that God has done in this 250 is a sight to behold. As God has pruned away those that want to chase after personalities. As God has pruned away those that want to chase after men. As God has pruned away those that want to claim a place for themselves in this church. As God has whittled us down to just those that want to cling to Jesus Christ and his precious word and nothing else. He has done a work the likes of which I could have never imagined if you had told me this two years ago. I praise him. I praise him for the work that he has done. But we must be careful. Because you see there's a ditch on the other side of the road. On this side of the road is that ditch which says my God would never be like that. My God would never act like that. That's not the God that I grew up believing in. You understand, as you come up out of that ditch and you seek to walk in the ditch of orthodoxy, you seek to walk in the ditch that is the true living God as he has revealed himself in his word, there's a ditch of theological pride just waiting to snatch us on the other side. You've got to understand, as we cling to the truth of God's doctrine, we, and I'm not telling you we're anywhere near this, but we've got to watch out, we've got to be aware, we've got to know that there's this ditch over there just waiting for us, that if we ever take our eyes off the ball, forgetting that the truth of this gospel is meant to drive us to a deeper love and obedience and compassion and worship and glory for the living God. It's the very purpose for this word is that we would enjoy him and bring him glory forever and invite others in to do this very same thing. Then there can become this spiritual haughtiness about us. The spiritual pride about us that we're the only people that have it figured out in all the world. We're the bright ones. We're the faithful ones. We're the smart ones. We're the ones that have found these hidden gems in Scripture. We must remember the very purpose behind seeking to know the Word is that we could see the face of God, that we could see who we really are, and that we can magnify Him in our life. That's the purpose for this. And the minute we take our eyes off of this, we'll find ourselves traveling just like these men. The situation will not be the same. It won't be a blind beggar. You see, a blind man comes in this room, and we're going to jump over ourselves to go help him. A stinky dude walks into this room. We're going to jump over ourselves to try and help him. It's going to be something very, very different if we're not careful. And again, this is hypothetical. I've not seen this play out. But I'm telling you, this is where the other ditch lies. It's when somebody comes into this place and they haven't traveled the paths that we've traveled. They haven't wrestled with the word the way that we've traveled. Some young person, all they know is they've been saved and they don't know a thing about how it happened. They know that they were a filthy sinner. They knew that God was a glorious God, and they knew that Jesus Christ was the answer. They had thrown themselves at his feet. They knew nothing of the eternal decrees. They knew nothing of the deep doctrines. They knew nothing of how much God had to do with their salvation and how little they had to do. All they know is that they've seen Jesus Christ, and they're on fire. This young person walks into this place, and he goes into one of our Bible studies, and he won't show up. No, he won't shut up. He's saying all the wrong things. He's saying things like, I found Jesus. I was seeking for God, and I found Jesus. And your little reformed heart just starts crying inside, and you've got a decision to make. This is your blind Bartimaeus. What do you do? Do you crush him? Do you spend 30 minutes peppering him with this, some exposition on Romans 3 and telling him, no one seeks after God, you stupid fool? Or do you rejoice with this man that God has brought him to this place? Do you rejoice with this man that God has brought him to this place of seeing his sin and seeing God and seeing Jesus as the only answer? And do you look to the living God and you say, praise you, God, that you have brought this man in this place that we might disciple them, that we might show them, that we might teach them, that we might worship with them. We thank you, God, that this one truly is yours, that you have poured out the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, to redeem him, and he is precious to you. This is the danger in the ditch that lies on the other side for us, church. I'm aware of it. I want you to know I'm aware of it, and I'm watching it from a long way off. And I don't see us heading towards that ditch. But if we're not aware that it's there, we will stumble into it. We will become that caricature, that caricature of a bunch of people that do not hold up this and seeing it the loving face of our Father and allow that love to change us as we love on the world. It just makes us into a bunch of haughty jerks. But we cling to this and we pray that this word would change us, that it would transform us, that we would be meek and humble and mild and loving and so desperate to get a hold of anyone that shows a spark of interest in who Jesus Christ is, that we can show them the truth of his word. That we can be used of God to do that impossible thing which he does, that continued touch of Jesus Christ, bringing men to faith. If Bartimaeus, that's, that may have been all that he knew at this moment. He knew that he was a sinner. He knew that he needed a Savior. He knew that that Savior had come to that town, and so he cried out. I want you to see on this day what a blessing this man's blindness really was. I guarantee you that for every moment of this man's life, he counted blindness as a curse. He counted blindness as a stumbling block. He counted blindness as a thing to be hated. But on this day, he was the one that recognized Jesus Christ was the son of David, and he cried out. Everybody in that group was blind to some degree. 
everybody in that group had been blind at some point to some degree. And yet so many of them would continue in their blindness because they didn't recognize their desperate need for mercy. But it was this man. He already knew. He already knew his need. He already knew his desperation. He already knew his helpless estate. This blindness brought him to this place where he would cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. When Jesus met the blind man in the synagogue and, and, the, and the disciples had asked him about, you know, who had sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind like this, Jesus went on to say, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. The man was born blind that the works of God might be displayed in him. Dear friends, you can't trust in the sovereignty of God and then curse him for the struggles that come in this lifetime. You can't believe in the sovereignty of God that is moving all things towards his good purpose and then curse him for the hurts that come in this lifetime. We rejoice that he has brought us to this place. We rejoice in our weakness. We celebrate in the fact that he brings us to a place where we know we have a desperation and it's nothing that we can do about it. That we would cry out like this man. So he would not let the crowd silence him on this day. They tell him to shut up and it wouldn't be easy for him to shut up. Clearly I'm not wanted here. But instead he continues all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. What a beautiful picture of prayer. Absolute beautiful picture of prayer and the persistence. This is the persistence of the neighbor we see in Luke 11. This is the persistence of the widow coming to the judge in Luke 18. This is Jacob wrestling with God saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. Now we can get this twisted if we're not careful. And believing that we can somehow demand something from the living God. That we can bend him to our whim. We must pray like Jesus Christ. Father God, this is my will, but not my will, but yours be done. And yet, we keep crying out. Not that we would change God. God says in Malachi 3.6, that I, the Lord, do not change. Not that we would change his sovereign plans. He says in Isaiah 46.10, as I have planned, so it shall be. And as I have purposed, show it, so it shall stand. And yet, still, we continue to pray. Still, we continue to cling. Still, we continue to cry out because the God of the universe who has decreed all things which will come to pass, he has decreed the means by which those things will come to pass. The God of the universe, if he wants you to live tomorrow, you will live tomorrow. He has determined the way you will live tomorrow is by breathing. You don't say, well, God, if you're sovereign, I'm going to hold my breath and see if I keep living. The God of the universe, he has determined that you will eat tomorrow. He has determined the means by which you will eat is you will plant some stuff today. We don't say, well, I'm not going to plant it, God, because if you're sovereign, you're going to provide it. The sovereign God of the universe, if you truly believe in his sovereignty, you will pray with all the more fervor. What God is worth praying to who is not sovereign? You pray to the God who controls all things. Proverbs 16.33 says that man casts the dice. He rolls the dice into his own lap, and yet God determines the outcome. That man plans his way in his hearts, but God ordains his steps. The hearts of kings in his hand is like a river, moving it as he wishes. Dear friends, I, don't, I think that we fall so short in recognizing all that God is in his sovereignty. As he moves all creation towards his providential plan. So he's moving step by step by step, and yet in the midst of that, we cry out to him in prayer. Knowing that this is the ordained means by which God accomplishes that which he's going to bring. He says it will be through your prayers. I want you to look at this. We don't have time, but that's okay. Turn to Acts 4. This is a great mystery. This is a great mystery because this is where we can find ourselves, right? We say, okay, look, you've been beating the drum of God's sovereignty for two years. Why would I ever pray? Why would I ever evangelize? Why would I ever do anything? If God is sovereign and he has determined all that is going to come to pass, what role do I have in any of this? Why don't I just lay in bed and let the sovereign God run his universe the way that he wants to run it? But what we find here in Acts 4, we find that Peter and John, they had been arrested. You remember they had healed the man at the uh, gate called Beautiful? Being arrested, they had been charged never to say such a thing again, never to preach about Jesus anymore. And then we look down at the believers and they pray in, in Acts 4, verse 23. And when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Listen now, for truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. 
There has never been a more vicious, a more wicked, a more vile sin in the history of the world than the death of God's own son, the murder, the execution, the blaspheming, the accusation, the killing of the son of God. And yet these men know that the sovereign God has ordained as your hand predestined to take place. Every single one of these men will answer for every single sinful act that they took in this time. And yet they know that this all happened according to God's predestined plan. If there has ever been a group that would have sat back and said, okay, then why pray? God, you predestined it. Even to the point of your death of your own son, what's the point in praying? But they go on. And now, Lord... Look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Dear friends, the sovereignty of God drives us to prayer. What God is worth worshiping, what God is worth singing songs to, what God is worth praying to that is not sovereign. Why would you pray to God if he could not control all things? And yet he has said, through some great mystery, we will never understand it in this lifetime. Through some great mystery, the God of the universe that is predestined, that is ordained, that is sovereign over all things, says, I am going to call you to pray. Why was blind Bartimaeus blind? Why did he live in Jericho? Why was he on that road? Why was Jesus Christ passing through? What led him to cry out in that moment? All the sovereign work of the living God, and yet he did on that day, he cried out. Not just once, but over and over and over again, crying out as God had determined he would do. He cries out to the living God and he says, have mercy on me. Jesus knew who this man was. You see this. He knew who this man was and he had been sustaining this man throughout all time. He knew the man's need. He knew what faith the man had because whatever faith he had had come from God. It would have been easy for Jesus to just pass through and just lightning bolted over to Bartimaeus and make him well. It would have been easy for Jesus to walk into town and go over to Bartimaeus, grab him by the hands, hold him up, and make him well. It would have been easy for Jesus to respond to the first time that Bartimaeus called him. And yet he determined that this man was going to call out over and over and over again. And then he would respond. Dear friends, don't give up in your prayers. You truly trust in the sovereign God. You do not let go. You cling tight. You say, I will not let go until you bless me. You continue to cry out for him. You continue to pray in accordance with his will. There's so much to be prayed within this word. You want to know something to pray? You go to your prayer closet, you go, I don't even know what to pray about. Dear friends, come to me and I'll show you plenty. There's plenty of prayers that you can pray that I promise you are in accordance with the will of God. This man cried out over and over and over again, and Jesus stopped. The son of the most high God. He was heading into Jerusalem to lay down his life, to give his life as a ransom for many. If this man was one of those, he was going to buy salvation for this man. And yet in this moment, he stops. According to his good and perfect plan, he would be there. That man would call and he would stop. While he had been marching ahead of the rest of the crowd, this crowd that was so whipped up into a political frenzy, can you imagine the distractions for that? In addition to that, he had his eyes fixed on the cross and he knew the suffering. He knew the torture. He knew the wrath of his father that was going to be poured out on him there. In addition to that, is the second member of the Trinity. He was holding all things together in the entire universe. Every subatomic particle was responding to the will of Jesus Christ in that moment, and yet the voice of this blind beggar caused him to stop. You'll never understand it, don't try. I see the wheels turning in your head right now. How does the sovereign God bring all this to pass? And then this man calls out to stop, and he stops. I don't know. We'll ask him when he gets there, but it's true. It's true, God's word says it is true. This man cried out and Jesus stopped. He turns and he calls him. He tells the men, these very same men that, the very same men that have been telling him to shut up, he tells them, go get him. And they come over to him and they say, take heart, get up. He is calling you. I don't even know if these men are smart enough to be embarrassed. But then he sends them. Jesus doesn't go himself. He sends these men because this was his plan. This is his plan for us that we go and we get these men and we bring them to Jesus Christ. Get up. There's another translation. I can't remember which one it is. There's another one that reads like this. Get up. Cheer up. He's calling you. Dear friends, what glorious words to deliver to the lost world. Get up. Cheer up. He's calling you. The God of the universe has heard your cry and he's calling you. He's telling you to come to him. These men were used in this glorious way. God didn't cast them out. Why didn't he just strike them all dead? Everyone that just told Bart to shush, dead. Instead he said, no, here, go and call him to me. 
And they brought him to Jesus. But he throws off his cloak and he sprang up and he ran without hesitation, without delay. That rich young ruler, he had once knelt before Jesus. He walked away sad because he had too much to give up. I want you to see not only how this man's blindness worked to his advantage, but how his poverty. This may have been the only thing he owned in the entire world was his cloak. And he gladly let loose of that because he had heard the voice of Jesus Christ. He had heard that he was called to Jesus Christ and he didn't care about a cloak anymore. He didn't care about anything else he had in this world. He was going to go and see the face of Jesus Christ. Nothing was going to stop him. I want you to see how his poverty worked to his advantage on this day. He had cursed it for all days, I'm sure. He had hated having to live hand to mouth. He had hated having to live at the goodwill of other people. And yet in this moment, it was the greatest gift he could have had because he had nothing to let go of but a cloak. He throws it down and he comes running towards that voice. And Jesus said to him, verse 51, what do you want me to do for you? The same question he asked James and John, and their answer was, make us big dogs. Dear friends, he asked the same question of you. And the way in which you answer it says a lot about your spiritual estate. What would you have me do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Rabbi means teacher. Matthew and Luke tell us that he also called him Lord. This was more than merely a teacher. This was the Lord. The sovereign God of the universe. And this man doesn't hem or haul. He doesn't beat around the bush. He comes straight out with it. He says, Lord, make me see, having no doubt that Jesus could do it. Much like the leper that comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, if you will, you can make me well. Let the one who comes come in faith with no doubt whatsoever. There is no lack. There is no absence. There is no limit to what the living God can do. And so we come to him knowing that if it be his will, there is nothing that he cannot do. So he cried out with faith, would you do this? Would you give me sight? Verse 52, and Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And we talked about this when we studied the lady with the bleeding problem, that it does not require saving faith to be healed by Jesus Christ. Physical healing was not a sign of salvation. It was not a sign of eternal life. There were many people that came to Jesus Christ with very little faith. There were some people that came to Jesus Christ with no ability for faith. There were some people that were dragged by others. You think about babies. You think about dead men. They weren't exhibiting faith. Someone else was bringing them in that moment. And yet even those that just believed that Jesus could heal, they had that level of faith, but they did not have true saving faith. We know this because they walked away never to follow Jesus ever again. And yet we know that there were some people that would come with saving faith. We know like the paralyzed man, his friends had taken the roof off of Peter's house and lowered him down before Jesus. And Jesus said that he had seen his faith. And he looks at the man and he says, your sins are forgiven. Sins are not forgiven apart from faith in Jesus Christ. So we know that this man believed much more than that Jesus was a healer. He believed much more that Jesus could heal his specific need. He knew that Jesus was the Christ. He knew enough to know that he was the one to place his trust in and his sins were forgiven. Clearly, there are some that have been brought to this place. Clearly, long before this day when blind Bartimaeus called out to the living God, this God had been calling out to him. He had regenerated within his heart the ability to see. He was seeing better than many of those within that group. He was hearing better than many of those within that group. He had a heart which could trust and believe. This doesn't happen apart from the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. Clearly, God had gone before and given this man an ability to cry out, ability to believe. And we know this by what comes next. Not merely coming to Jesus Christ, seeking to see again listen to what happens immediately he recovered his sight and he followed him on the way this was the evidence we're not told of other people that jesus healed following after him the man in john 9 the blind man he wouldn't even really figure out who jesus was until sometime much later you remember the man at the garrisons with the many demons after jesus healed him he wanted to get in the boat and follow after jesus christ but jesus told him no you'll be one of my first missionaries going to these gentile countries and telling them the good things that i've done and yet this man immediately he follows after jesus christ luke tells us that he follows after jesus singing praises of worship while all the rest of the crowd celebrates what god has done this man becomes an immediate worshiper glorifying god this man who was sitting poor by the road was now walking worshiping on the road You see the transformation. You see the work of the living God as he moves providentially all of his creation toward this moment to bring this man to meet this Jesus Christ, that he would be healed, he would be a worshiper, that he would be glorifying God while marching along that same road, headed into Jerusalem for the Passover. This man received so much more than just eyesight. He received eternal life because of his contact with the living God, and he may not have known in that moment. I imagine that blind Bartimaeus, he might have thought all this was just chance. He might have thought all of it was just the circumstances of his life. 
may have had no idea the sovereignty in God of moving him towards this moment, of bringing him to this place, of allowing him to be blind, of allowing him to be poor, of allowing Jesus to pass through on this day. But on this day, he was saved from eternal death, from the wrath of God, by the hand of God, through the Son of God, by the faith that he instilled in this man. Jesus said to this man, go your way. I could just hear blind Bartimaeus looking at him and saying, Jesus Christ, you are the only way. I have no other way to go. You have given me eyes to see and you have given me sight. I'm not going to waste it on anything else. Dear friends, what have you wasted the sight that God has given you on? What things have your eyes beheld this week? What things have you cherished and delighted in this week? Dear friends, may we give ourselves at every moment and every second to giving ourselves over completely and wholly to this Jesus Christ, to keeping our eyes transfixed on him, not just for some act of obedience, obedience not just because it's the churchy thing to do because we know that that is where true hope true joy true satisfaction is found and seeing the glory of god in the face of his son jesus christ this man had seen the face of jesus and i have to wonder what he thought when he saw the the man jesus standing before him i bet he was like that's it thought you'd be prettier yet he knew that this was the one he wanted to follow all the rest of his life, and so he followed after him. Church, as best I can tell, in Mark's gospel, this man would be the last to follow after Jesus Christ until the cross. This man in Zacchaeus called to follow Jesus Christ as he passed through Jericho, but then, apart from the thief sitting next to him on the cross, and then the centurion at the foot of the cross, after seeing the events of the day, was convinced that surely this was the Son of God, that from here to there that door was closed. That this time had come to pass. Jesus' miraculous workings, his teaching, he was headed in Jerusalem. Passion week begins now. I'm looking around at the room, and I know most of you guys, and I know most of your stories, and I know where God has been working in most of your lives. But dear friends, I'd be a fool if I did not call to you this day. Even those of you that have been part of this church for some time, even those of you that are leading Bible studies within this church, even those of us that are standing and preaching gospel messages within this church, I would be a fool if I didn't call out to you this day and ask you, are you truly repenting and following Jesus Christ? It's not just a one-time deal, but at the end of all this glorious teaching that we have heard from Jesus over these days, his continued correction and the faulty thought of his disciples, if you have come into contact with this, if you've seen the face of, living, of, of your living God, if you've seen the face of Jesus Christ, your Savior, and if you day after day after day has this driven you to repent and believe and follow after him, if not, if not, may this be your call today. Get up. Cheer up. He's calling you. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. Thank you for this glorious gospel message. We thank you for the truth that your son Jesus Christ is the God who saves, redeeming men by his blood. We thank you that by your Holy Spirit you cause men to cry out, to place their, fa their faith in Jesus Christ, to repent and be saved. And we thank you, Father, that the endurance in that faith is not up to us, it is all your working. We are safe in your hands and no one could snatch us away. But Father, we know that you did not save us just for giggles. You didn't just save us for our own enjoyment. Father, we know that you saved us for the purpose of your glory. You saved us to be a disciple-making people, going out and sharing this good news with the nations. Father, help us to do that. Help us to have a zeal to share this good news, to never shush, to never distract, to never build our own kingdoms, to never chase away those that would seek to follow after you. And help us to glorify you. Glorify you in our hearts, glorify you in our minds, and now glorify you with the words that we sing. We pray all this in your son's precious name. Amen.